Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV. Really pleased to have you with us tonight. We've got, we've got a full deck tonight. We've got loads mm. and loads of guests to come around. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, therapeutic boundaries. We're going to be looking at managing professional boundaries, and we're particularly looking at secure settings. So before I introduce our fantastic guests, let me come to Vanessa, who can tell you all how you can join in today. Vanessa? Hello everyone, I'm Vanessa Garrity. Um, so to join in tonight, which we encourage you to do, we're hoping to have lots of lively discussion about tonight's topic. So if you're on Facebook, if you like the Unite MHNA page, then you should see the live feed pop up there on your page. You'll see that there's a live stream and also a comments box. So, you know, do ask us any questions and comments and I'll be keeping an eye on the social media. If you prefer to join in on Twitter, just follow the hashtag MHTV. And again, you should see the conversation there and I will keep an eye on that. And any questions you've got or comments, we'll feed into the conversation. So, yeah, do join in. Thank you. Brilliant. So let's go around on my screen. I've got Emma first. Emma, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. And good evening, everybody. My name's Emma Wade. I'm the Deputy Director of Mental Health Nursing for NHS England. Um, but tonight I'll be drawing on the experience that I had when I worked for a number of years, actually, across the prison service and particularly led on their work around um, therapeutic boundaries or conditioning, as they call it in there. And also I worked as a consultant nurse in Broadmoor Hospital, High Secure Hospital. Um, and again, led their work there around teaching and training and supporting staff to manage therapeutic boundaries and therapeutic relationships. Thank you very much. Teresa? Hi, I'm Teresa. I currently work, I'm a consultant nurse, currently work in older adults, um, but I have worked in forensics, both in secure hospital and uh, HMP prisons, um, and seen quite a few boundary violations. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to have a good discussion tonight and, you know, look at it in terms of that it's not unusual, it's not uncommon, and it's something that we all really need to be aware of. Last but obviously not least, Karen, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, thank you, Nikki. Yes, I'm, um, I'm Karen Wright. I'm a professor of nursing at the University of Central Lancashire. I too have worked in high secure services. Um, but also in acute um, services as well. And the um, probably the area where I've considered professional boundaries more than anything else, actually, was when I was course leader for the Master of Science degree in personality disorder, um, because people often suggest that it's a, it's a real concern for them when working with people who experience a diagnosis of personality disorder. Mm. Absolutely. So I think just to get going, it might be um, really helpful for us to understand a little bit about, you know, what, what do we mean by secure services? Because that's kind of where we're going to be focusing tonight. But also when we're talking about professional boundaries and sort of therapeutic relationships, what are, we, what are we actually talking about? And I know that's a big question, so I'll just throw it out there, see who jumps on it. <laughs> who wants to go? Do I jump on there? What is the secure service and go for the easy topic first and, and then draw in Karen and Teresa? Mm. So we're focusing very much on what we class as our secure services, our forensic services. So what we mean by those are um, our ward inpatient settings fundamentally, um, where there is a level of security, which means that people do not have free movement to leave. So they tend to be very closed environments, as you would expect. We'll be talking about prison environment, but also mental health secure settings. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people in the um, mental health settings have committed a crime, um, although many of them will have done so. And so there is an additional level of risk that we need to consider 
when we're thinking about um, boundaries and therapeutic relationships and what that might mean and how it's perceived. And of course, in the prison service, there'll be different levels of understanding, again, around what constitutes an effective relationship if, or, or professional relationship. So we'll be talking mainly around those inpatient settings, but that's not to say that boundary drifts, violations, breaches, whichever we want to call it, don't happen in everyday practice across all settings. It's just that we'll be focusing on a particular population where we know there has been some really high profile um, and significant boundary violations in the past. I might invite colleagues Teresa and Karen now to talk about the therapeutic relationship and what we mean by that. Mm. Well, I could talk about the therapeutic relationship till I was blue in the face, actually. <laughs> but of course, um, when you talk about therapeutic boundaries, it's all about the relationship and the um, the way, the space between yourself and the other person. In fact, I have heard it described as the space between the nurse's power and the patient's vulnerability. And in that space lies a boundary, which is professional and protects both people. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And I, I, yeah, I think for me, it's about acting in the patient's best interest and respecting their dignity, but also behaving in a manner that reflects our professional boundaries, um, you know, as well as our, our, our codes of conduct and whichever trust or organisation we're working with. And for me, when I've worked in secure services, the, the, the big thing for me to be able to get across to patients is no matter what the situation is or what happens, there's only one thing that I can promise you, and that is I will always be honest. So, you know, we were having a, an admission. I'd always, you know, try to be the person that conducted that admission um, in order that I could obviously complete all the assessments, but also have that conversation. Because typically people, certainly in a hospital setting, would be quite unwell on admission. Um, you know, you have to remember that they, they've often, as we all are, products of our environment, that they've often had lots of, um, you know, relationships that haven't been the most healthy or, you know, had complex dynamics within families, etc. So to be able to say to them at that time, you know, I will always be honest with you and I would always follow it up with, but you need to remember that the in saying that, there are going to become times where I will be honest with you, you're not going to like what you hear me say, but I need you to remember that at that time, I'm not hiding anything from you. I am being completely honest. And I have to say that, you know, that conversation sort of served me well without my throughout my sort of four years of working in secure services because I was always able to say remember that conversation we had I am being honest with you um now whether that was just sheer luck I don't know but it, it worked for me um because you have so many difficult don't you conversations um people are on different stages of the the journey the recovery that there needs to be some stable stable part of your relationship you know you need to be authentic and trustworthy um and they need to know where, where where they stand you know it is a it is a reciprocal relationship isn't it and we need to remember that whatever we do at any point or given time is going to have an effect um on or for that person 
And I think you've really all hit on some really important points there, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's this idea that we we have a therapeutic use of self. So you have to have some kind of understanding of who you are, mm-hmm. and but you also have to have an understanding of how you impact on other people. And I think what's really interesting about boundaries is that's the that's the point which you stop and they start. So how you manage that space and how you help people to feel particularly if they've had a loss of sense of self or if they've had quite disrupted childhoods, maybe that sense of self isn't as secure as it is for other people. All those things make it really, really important that we are really thoughtful about how we talk and connect and interact with people because it's such a shaky time when you don't feel safe necessarily about what's real and what isn't. You need the people around you to be absolutely trustworthy. And something that Emma said before we got started was this idea that in the past we were just told you don't disclose anything about yourself. You know, you're you're the blank face of nothing. Very cuddly and warm and encouraging and supportive or recovery orientated. But it's this idea that you'd be really professional by not saying anything, even like your name when it's on your badge. You know, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, people would cover up their name badges. Yeah. Put like a bit of plaster over it. And you'd be like, your name is on the board at the front of the ward. What are you doing with your picture next to it? You know, and I, there's this idea about, you know, kind of being very worried or very anxious about other people having access to us and our information, but yet having every piece of information about the other person and not thinking about the power imbalance that causes. Mm. So I wonder if anybody wants to talk a little bit about, about their experiences of, of, of boundaries. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just pick up on something you just said there, if you don't mind, then, Nikki, because I think when you said about, you know, we use ourselves so much, but we often are caring for people who have a very fragile sense of themselves. But it is them and their selves that has to always be the focus of all of the interactions. And it's really tricky as, you know, I think of student nurses when they're just finding their way and they they decided to do nursing because they really care about people. They feel that they can intuitively do it, but actually forget that forget about themselves a little bit when they're intuitively caring and share an awful lot about themselves. But there's a bit of a red flag, really, which I always say to student nurses, and that is that if you notice at any time in the interaction it's becoming about you, you've crossed the line because it's always got to be about the other person Mm -hmm. and meeting the other person's needs. Mm -hmm. And it might make you feel fabulous to do something lovely for somebody, but actually... It's supposed to be about making that other person feel fabulous, not you. Mm. Mm. I suppose the other thing, because we are talking high secure here, and that, that does give a different, or not necessarily high secure, but secure services, I should say, mm. that does give a different perspective that, and or lens that we need to consider um, the importance of boundaries through. And that is the element of risk <clears throat> mm. and how that information might be used or construed or considered or interpreted in a different way, whether that's because of someone's illness or actually because of their offending behaviour, if they are an offender. And I wouldn't want us to lose sight of that. So that that is a completely different lens that we need to, to think about, which does add a, a slightly different dimension when we're thinking about how we manage both therapeutic self, but also that relationship. The thing that always stuck in my mind when I first went to work in the, the prison is that you're not there to be a professional friend, you're a friendly professional. Yeah. And that can be really hard to know the difference. Um, but there is, you know, you are there, as Karen said, to serve someone else, not to serve your own end or to give yourself your own therapy or check out your own stuff. 
Mm -hmm. um, but there, I, I wouldn't want us to lose sight of that element around that risk profile, which is to say it is a significant issue and has been. And unfortunately, um, I have known cases where people have come to harm because of information they have shared, both physical and psychological. And of mm -hmm. course, that is rare. Um, and that's not to say that that is the ulterior motive all the time, but it is something we need to consider when we're thinking about boundaries, because actually the context is key. And where it might be appropriate to share in one environment or within one context doesn't necessarily transfer to another. And so I think particularly um, for nurses, when you're thinking about boundaries and, and what you disclose and why you're disclosing it, it's also thinking about context, um, where you are, why you want to share and how it's going to be used and, and understood, not just by the person, but everyone else around you. So the other thing I was always mindful of it's not so much your intention with that individual, it's how it's perceived by others. And certainly when I worked um, both in the prison actually and in the secure settings, you are watched by everyone else. They haven't got anything else to do. Yeah, watch you. They are monitoring who you're talking to, how long you're spending. Yep. Are you sharing your sandwich with, you know, they are watching and monitoring and checking out for mm -hmm. the difference. And I know we're going to talk about splitting a little bit, which is a term we often hear about. But often it's, you know, it's not just how you perceive it's how it's perceived by everyone around you and how that can elevate risk for both the individual and the team approach so i know yeah. we we're going to talk about some individuals i just thought there's some key things that we needed to pick out that make this particular environment slightly different perhaps to others mm. we're getting loads of questions yeah. already by the way just take a breath, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, I would have to agree with you there, Emma, because straight away I was thinking of um, specifically in prisons, you know, because, um, you know, both organisations, NHS and, and the, the, the prison itself has to follow the prison regime, you know, I think staff become unaware that when you know, patients or prisoners are locked behind their doors, they can still hear and see what is going on. And yep. many a time I would have somebody come to me and tell me what one of my colleagues had been doing or where they were going or what car they drove or where they lived. Not the address, but the locality, um, you know. And I, th I think people forget about that. It's almost like, you know, if your patient's out of sight, then, you know, they're out of mind and they completely lose that um, recognition of what's going on around them without that realisation of that that risk that Emma talked about, you know, that potential risk to self and others, mm. which is so important because, you know, you can behave so innocently, can't you? But that one comment can be really significant to somebody who would like something you know, to do with that information. So it's important to remember that risk element. Mm, I think we can't underestimate how mm -hmm. skilled it is though as well, because the potential for humanising people in prison by therapeutic use of self is also really important, but it's a very kind of nuanced exchange, isn't it? And I think, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of clinical supervision really, which sometimes almost seems like a cliche to say, but, um, you know, being able to kind of discuss these issues and nurses feeling that they can actually talk openly about their own boundaries and, uh, you know, question whether or not you're crossing any boundaries. I think it's really important, but I think it scares people to even talk about it. And then what happens is that the extreme people get into kind of violations of boundaries and very kind of difficult 
situation. So for me, I think it's on um, a continuum and there's all sorts of other things around kind of culture and values as well that are, um, you know, that are part of this as well. So I think there's risk at the one end and then there's humanity at the other end and it's about kind of finding your way somewhere in between, really. And every situation's different, yeah. Every situation's different, isn't it? And every person's different, you know, both clinician and the person that you're engaging with as well. So when Mm -hmm. we're talking about sort of like boundary violations, what would you say that we're talking about? What kind of sort of incidents and issues are we talking about I think it depends doesn't it like you know we've talked there about some risk issues where um the potential is for your personal information to be used in a way that might put you at risk so that's kind of a risk um but I think that depends I think it's very individualized isn't it you can't take a blanket approach it's like anything in mental health nursing isn't it it's about Um, working with the individual and understanding the individual risk factors so it might be quite um, you know might put you at risk to disclose really personal information but at the other end um, it might be really therapeutic to um, to share something of yourself Um, but it's there's no kind of script you can't really say this is what you should share with people and this isn't what you should share because it's very different isn't it in different situations so I think there's obviously that, you know, individual um, disclosure of sort of personal information, but there's obviously violations where people get too close, you know, and let's be honest, you know, in mental health where clinicians have had relationships, you know, with people that they care for as well. So I think um, there's lots of different angles to this really that we, we kind of need to talk about. I often think about boundary drifts where we kind of slightly deviate from the norm or the way things are done, whether that's stretching to give someone an extra portion of chips yeah, um, against what they should be having, which is different to someone else. Um, and then there's a continuum, as you say, to, to the really extreme violations. Mm. I've always thought of that you don't just jump to a violation. There will be a series of drifts, both as individuals yeah. and as teams, yeah. because I think we need to recognise that we can often focus on the individual that the violation happens to, if you like. But actually, there would have been a whole catalogue of drift, boundary drifts and boundary deviations that people have either turned a blind eye to because we're busy or it just seems so preposterous to think that that could possibly happen or we think, oh, that's not that serious or it doesn't matter, that then ends in in kind of catastrophe. I think there are some red lines, though, actually, that are really, really clear. Mm. Um, we should never disclose information about other staff or patients. And I think that comes back to what Teresa has said. You know, I actually had an experience, not in a secure setting, but in clinical practice, actually, on um, on Friday in an acute hospital where um, a colleague in a different team, we were assessing a patient together, disclosed that the per- another colleague was off because they were getting married. Mm. <laughs> and the person said, you know, and I was just thinking, I can't believe you've just <laughs> disclosed that. Someone else's personal information because I think that, you know, it should be an individual decision about what we share with whom mm-hmm. and why. So I think there are some, some clear lines. Mm-hmm. And then actually there are some leg- legal issues. So within a prison, there are actually, there, it is a crime. It's a crime by the prisoner to corrupt an official. And it is a, a crime for um, a member of staff to have a relationship because it actually puts others at risk. You know, if you're unlocking the door, you're sharing information, um, you're putting others at risk. So if in a prison there are actually, there are legal frameworks that decide um, what a boundary breach is, but also take very serious action. And we know there's been some really high profile cases 
in prison of both sexes for that for that reason. In secure settings, it is very clear as well, actually, that if the person is sectioned, which invariably they will be within a secure setting, you don't have voluntary patients within secure settings, they will be um, detained under the Mental Health Act. If you have a sexual relationship with them as a professional, it is classed as statutory rape. And I have seen cases where nurses have not only been struck off from the register, not only have they gone to prison, they have lost access to their children because they are placed on the sex offenders register. So there are some really clear, and thankfully it's very rare, but we do have to recognise that in mental health particularly, which again is different to perhaps other healthcare settings where there isn't such a clear line, there is a very strong legal framework that's in place and is used mm. to effectively punish. Um, and, mm. and, you know, they're just, they sound extreme and I guess they are the extremes, but unfortunately this does happen mm. and continues to happen. I think the thing is, though, those are, you know, the other end of the continuum. And I think most clinicians would know that it was wrong to have a sexual relationship with um, another patient. I mean, that's kind of an, well, I would hope that would be an obvious one and it's quite right that there would be serious sanctions. But um, I think what's complicated is that the other end of the spectrum, um, the kind of more, um, you know, when you use yourself in an interaction, but you kind of use too much. I think like what Karen was alluding to really earlier, kind of recognising um, when you're using yourself for kind of therapeutic purpose or when you've, you've kind of digressed beyond that to talk about yourself for your own purposes. I think that's kind of an example for me. And I think that's where it's complex. And I think that's where the drifting, Emma, that you talked about is really key, isn't it? That other people in the team will notice that and be able to pick up on it and identify it. And obviously, you know, questioning yourself and taking that to supervision as well. No, I was just going to say, I, I mean, what, the stuff that Emma was saying there, really clear. There are some very, mm -hmm. very clear red lines. You just don't cross that line. And I guess that's why it's called a boundary. Mm -hmm. I mean, in actual fact, I sort of wish we didn't use the word boundary. I wish we just used a word that was about professional relationships. And then that would just, you know, make it not feel like such a it seems like restrictive practice when you call it a line in some ways but i i understand why it is called a boundary but there is so much there are so many nuances in different services and also people's different perspectives so when i used to lead the uh, the master's degree in personality disorder i used to do this boundaries quiz and there were all sorts of questions on there that people had to ask would they do it sometimes never always questions like would you post a letter for a patient mm. of course in high school you would never post a letter yeah. for anybody yeah. ever under any circumstances whatsoever um would you um would you tell a patient what you were doing at the weekend would you would you help a patient to have a bath would you all sorts of these di different questions that you would ask and you'd be surprised how many people said well yes i'd do that it's not it's fine to do that why isn't it okay to do that and we used to I, I well I used to refer them to a decision tree I'm sure yeah. probably lots of people here have heard about you know decision trees the first one was always if you are in a, if you were in a glass room and everyone around you could see you doing that would you still do it <laughs> but the but the uh, College of Nurses of Ontario have got a really good decision tree and it's, you know, is what you are going to do consistent with this person's plan of care? 
if, if it is, then yes, you might do it. If it isn't, you definitely abstain. Is it in keeping with your role? So as a registered nurse in charge of a ward, you might not take somebody out on a walk, but somebody else might do. Um, um, what was the other one? Is this behaviour consistent with... Um, no, is this thing that you would do what you would want everybody else to know that you were doing it? Because keeping secrets is a massive red flag. Absolutely. That's right. And it's those three years. And if you can mm -hmm. say yes to all of those things, yes, it's it's in keeping with my role. Mm. Yes, it's in the care plan. And I would be happy for other people mm. to see it, then it's probably it's probably all right. Mm. And again, it's that thing, exactly that, that what Emma was saying, this idea about. It doesn't just happen. An intimate relationship doesn't just happen. No. It occurs because some well, people are unsure yeah. about what they should and shouldn't Creep. share, or because they're misusing their power, or they're or they're getting something emotional out of a relationship which should be purely supportive and therapeutic. So it, it slips and slides all over the place, and it takes place within a context. And it's very easy to find somebody who's made one of these terrible, awful mistakes or crimes and all crimes, but uh, and then point the finger at them and think that could never be me. But mm -hmm. I think all of us have the potential to overstep a boundary or to to make a, make a mistake. So I think there's something when we're talking about this, we're not saying like it's it's this thing that only happens to bad people or bad practitioners. No. I think it's something no. which we all have to just be self-examining all the time. And and exactly with the decision tree, I think can take some of the anxiety out of that. But also as, as Vanessa was saying and Teresa was saying, is being able to talk to your colleagues about what you're doing is really important and check it out with them so that, you know, having those kind of conversations means that as a team you are nursing and you're not you're not just you and another person trapped in this very sort of close knit and particularly in secure settings when there's less stimulus and there's so much more focus on interpersonal relationships and what everybody's doing. It can become like um, kind of like a Petri dish, can't it? It can become very intense. And if you're doing long shifts, so you might be with, you know, if you're doing like a late, then a two long days and then an early, you're with that population in that setting more mm -hmm. than you're with your friends and family. And it's very easy for it to become very intense. And I think for young practitioners, I don't know how, how if anyone else remembers this at the start, and um, the being a nurse was something I trained to do for so long. And I wanted to be a good nurse so much mm -hmm. that I was really immersed. I went into intensive care unit as my first job and I was completely immersed in that world. And it, almost like the outside world felt much less real to me. And it was only till I sort of like, you know, thanks to my senior colleagues and my more experienced colleagues, they helped me find my feet a little bit and balance myself out. It was very overwhelming. I think when I first sort of started working one-to-one -one with people as a practitioner and taking that responsibility. So I was lucky, but we're working in very different circumstances now in terms of the amount of senior nurses and experienced nurses around. Mm. I do wonder as well, Nikki. Hmm. Sorry, were you talking then, Emma? No, you go first, Teresa, you go first. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder whether we pay enough attention, you know, as teams and services to what's going on within our teams because as you said, Nikki, any of us can make a mistake. You know, who who knows when you're going to find yourself in that position where you have crossed that line or breached that boundary. You know, can any of us really hold our hands up and say, that would never happen to me? So do we pay enough attention to our colleagues? You know, what they're doing? Do we offer them enough support? Do we ensure that clinical supervision is happening regularly? 
you know, certainly in prisons because, you know, your regime, your day is dictated to you. A lot of things that you would find in a, a secure ward environment, in my experience, haven't had the same emphasis placed upon them. Um, so, you know, are, are we looking after our staff enough? Oh, are we recognising when things are going wrong? Are we giving them the opportunity to sit down and say, help me, I'm stuck. I think I've made a mistake or I think I'm going to make a mistake. You know, have we got staff that are, are, are going to work worried about what they might get themselves into and they don't know how to ask for help? Mm. And by the same token... If you find yourself feeling defensive, if somebody says, what, what made you do that? What? Tell me why that was a good idea to do that. If you find yourself being defensive or defensive about a particular patient, that in itself is a red flag, mm. isn't it? You know, yeah. and I think, I think you're absolutely right about a team supporting each other and having a level of cohesiveness and consistency around, around what is professional the good practice and where there is a drift to that and, and some of the drifts that emma spoke about earlier are, are very very subtle things like thinking about a patient on your days off mm. you know we we have to be able to separate ourselves from work on our days off don't we and lots of us you know we do far too much work certainly in in academic jobs you, you, you when do you ever switch off nikki you know but <laughs> but when you're working in secure services with patients work is work and home is home and as soon as you feel there's a merging of the two that's that really is a red flag i think i also just want to go back to what Teresa's saying because we're focusing very much on individual and I would like us to go back to the team and it, it very much is about looking out for each other, paying attention, but it's also recognising that within a team we assign roles and tasks to people and individuals, which can be incredibly flattering. Um, oh, you're really good with that patient, oh, but they really like you. Oh, yeah. Um, um, or, you know, whatever it is, and I've seen that happen. So often people get pushed into positions where boundary drifts, breaches are more likely just by nature of the team dynamics um, or the time spent or, or whatever it is. And likewise, although we've spoken very much around, um, and often you see that group think with breaches as well, so that's the thing, things suddenly become acceptable. So um, to give an example, I walked onto a ward where um, a member of staff was doing a beauty treatment to a male patient, I'll leave it at that. And I could not believe that no one else was really batting an eyelid. So I walked in and nearly had a heart, you know, heart attack. What the hell do you think you're doing? You know, so it people had become blinded to it as a team, not just as an individual. And that's why, again, it's not just about teams. It's why it's so important to have that independent reflection or someone else coming in and having a second look, mm -hmm. thinking it through in these really complex situations. Mm -hmm. Likewise, where you get really restrictive interventions, we've spoken a lot about um, relationships, sexual relationships, perhaps intimacy, but we've also seen the opposite where environments become very restrictive. That's yeah. also a boundary breach, yeah. um, where suddenly um, practices around locking people in their rooms for longer, withholding access to, to family or access to activities, mm. that in itself is a, is a boundary breach as well. And we can often get focused on the intimacy, but actually when we withdraw ourselves,
themselves for whatever reason, whether it's lack of staff, lack of experience, fear. Mm. Um, we're also creating a boundary breach because we're actually not meeting the needs of that person in a way that we should and would want to. Mm. And I, the final thing before we move into questions, I absolutely agree that all of us are susceptible and all of us will have breached boundaries at some point, hopefully not the really extreme ones. None of us come into nursing or any clinical profession thinking, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to run off with a patient and, and end up in prison. Something happens along the way. Um, and one of the greatest myths when we did work was always thinking it was the young new staff and actually it wasn't, yeah. not always. And so I think there's lots of myths in this area. And I think if, if there was only some honesty that all of us will have got caught out, gone down a road, got stuck, done something we, on reflection we wouldn't do um, and acknowledged and shared that, we'd be in a much better, more transparent, more um, safe environment for everybody yeah. actually, if we had that honesty. Mm, absolutely. Vanessa, should we come to some questions and some comments from people who are watching tonight? Yeah, we've got quite a lot of comments. So um, we've got one from Alfonso, um, which says, um, students often tell me a service user is in love with me or a service user asks if I am single. What advice would you give students about how to manage difficult conversations like these ones? So yeah i always say always remember that the conversation's got to be about them so you know without wanting to sound abrupt i would always encourage a student nurse to say but i'm here to look after you what's going on for you hmm. yeah you know, have you got anyone special in your life hmm. to turn it around in a kind in a kind way not to be dismissive yeah. But, uh, you know, what's going on for you, sort of thing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we've got, yeah, we've got one on social media. So um, somebody's I just... I was about that one, actually, just thinking of someone's... I think there's something about validating and acknowledging what they've shared with you, because there's two ways that people share that with you. Sometimes to embarrass you as a student nurse, they're testing you out as one to see what your reaction is going to be. Definitely. The other is that they could have actually misconstrued because they've never had a, a healthy relationship or someone take time in them. So they've misconstrued intent. Yep. So I think there is something about, and I know this comes with experience and it's easy when you're one step away, but to, to not be too dismissive because actually that could have taken someone a lot. And you will gauge that as a, you know, as a student yeah. nurse, you will gauge that, the difference. But there's something about acknowledging that they've said it I think yes. there's also something about role modeling how that made you feel, mm. saying actually that's inappropriate. Um, let you know, let us talk about that. But I am going to need to disclose that to someone else because that's made me feel quite uncomfortable, and I need to now. You know, I think there's something about being open, yeah. validating, being open back to the person that actually that that's not an appropriate um, comment within the realms of a professional relationship, um, because ultimately we're there to role model and to teach in some cases people that have not had uh, a healthy relationship role modeled particularly mm -hmm. within the secure settings where the, you know there are whole programs that um, I led on actually about healthy relationships mm. so I think it's it depends on your level of experience and confidence around managing that but I think the most important thing is it, it comes back to none are going to be the same mm. but there's also something about those student nurses need to have shared it's, it's great that they've told you Alfonso really because they're sharing and disclosing it and they're 
thinking about it rather than keeping it to themselves. But um, I think it's quite important to role model. Yeah. yeah. I do wonder as well, sorry, Nikki, um, with what you reported Alfonso saying, it sounded like there's clearly more than one student nurse has come to him. So I'm wondering, you know, is there a training gap in student nurse education? There? Are we not discussing this enough and giving them the opportunity to learn, you know, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, you know, very basics, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's a boundary, what's a violation, you know, and having those discussions before they get into practice, which would then give them more confidence, one, to address it and two to take it to supervision you know and probably ask for help at a, an earlier stage than they might otherwise have done so yeah i was going to just mention the star wards mm. work around this that was actually created by service users oh yeah recognizing that you know it, and actually giving you sentences things that you can actually say when these things happen to you when someone is sexual with you or uh, angry with you or there's a big silence or there's something that makes you feel uncomfortable there's mm -hmm. all those. There's all that guidance. Then we'll try and tweet that out because it is really handy. Yeah, we'll look at that. That's good. Yeah, on about that. One of the things I think is really important to say is, you know, this this thing is that that's not possible. Thank you for telling me, but that's not possible because we have these big discussions about therapeutic relationships, but nobody tells a service user what a therapeutic relationship mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And you know, and the way you you make any normal relationship really is you share information, it layers on top. You know, think about, you know, if you go uni or something like that, you all ask each other about his A-levels. And that's the last time anyone will care about your A-levels, by the way. So do get it out there. <laughs> and then you layer this information on top. You find out what you have in common and you form a friendship. But that's not what a therapeutic relationship is. The shape of a therapeutic relationship is very different, but nobody tells service users this. So when, you know, when you when they say, oh, do you have kids? It's not because they're planning on kidnapping them necessarily. It's because those are questions that you ask people that you meet in the same way as, oh, what do you get up to at the weekend? It's not necessarily a sign that you're about to be stalked or abducted. So please take it down a notch. <laughs> We're not trying to make you really scared. <laughs> Go on, Vanessa, sorry, I interrupted you. Um, no, no, thank you. Um, so we've got a comment on um, social media, which we haven't talked about tonight. So um, it's just a suggestion from Sophie Lou, if that's how you pronounce the name. What have not, and she says, what of not using your actual name on social media as some patients may be able to find you on there? So what do people think? <laughs> I think it's never a good idea to have your surname on really, is it? Um you know, I have come across colleagues who have been found on social media, um, just as anybody could find them. So I, I think one, if you're going to put your name on and you know that you can be found, then you've got to be very sensitive about your security settings, haven't you? Um, and then if people manage to get through your security settings, you've got to be mindful of whatever you're writing on there. Do you want the entire world to know it? You know, and are you aware of the attention that could create for you, not just from our patients, but, you know, anybody that just happens to log on to, to social media. For me, that's sort of a way of a living rather than doing something just because you're a healthcare professional. I don't know if that makes sense to people. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's, again, I keep saying nuanced tonight, but I think it is, <laughs> it is nuanced. So, you know, my full name is on Twitter but I consider that to be my professional account. And I do share bits about myself because I think it's about being authentic as well and trying to break down the them and us kind of barriers. But um, 
how I interact on Twitter is very different to how I kind of interact on Facebook, which is just friends and close family. And if I had um, a request on Facebook from somebody, you know, that I'd cared for in a professional context, then I would decline it. But, you know, I'm followed on Twitter by people who've met me in a professional context. Um, And I feel okay about that because I feel like I could handle any boundary issues because I feel like that's my professional account. Um, So for me, it's not kind of black and white. I don't think it depends on the platform and it depends Mm. on the purpose of your account. And probably it depends on what your work role is as well. What, you know, what job you're doing. I might feel different if I was in a different job. Um, I don't think it's straightforward. I don't know what other people think, but that's kind of my position on it anyway. I've got similar to you, I guess, Vanessa. And, yeah. Um, I don't use Facebook very often, but it is just, it's got all the secure safety settings yeah. that you can possibly have, et cetera. I think the reality is, and what I, I think it comes back to what Karen said, realistically, if you're putting anything in social media, are you happy for your mum to read it, your grandma? Mm. Um, mm. Because actually nothing is secure. I am quite technologically inept. I'm sure there are far people that if they're really that interested in finding out something, they could find it. So mm-hmm. I think it's around your what you're personally comfortable with, but being aware realistically that anything you put out there on the ether could be found by anybody at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to scare people. I just think it's a reality. Mm-hmm. We know that actually, um, I'm just so glad some of this wasn't around when I was younger, to be honest. Um, not that I did mm-hmm. anything particularly exciting, but you know, <laughs> You don't really want pictures of me with my peroxide blonde hair that went completely wrong and the dodgy haircut, you know, and all sorts of other things. But I think the reality is we know that employers check Facebook. We know that regulators keep an eye on it. We know the same with Twitter. People, public report us. We saw that during COVID, actually. I think that was a really clear example. I remember, I think it was the Sun newspaper. Someone had got a picture of a group of nurses in a hot tub, completely that sounds more dodgy than it actually was a completely yeah. relaxing group of five lived together, but were reported because people thought they're breaching um, COVID restrictions at the time. Um, it caused a huge amount of anxiety and distress. Yeah. Because it had been completely misconstrued. It was a completely innocent photo, but again, mm-hmm. taken out of context. Yeah. So I think it's a really tricky area, but I think you just have to consider that anything that you put out there may be used and being mindful of that, I think that's a reality, unfortunately. I do. I think what's kind of professionally, you know, the concept of context collapse is really important, isn't it? That pre-social media, you could keep your kind of personal life separate from your professional life and it wouldn't be reported on. But accepting now that kind of whatever you put online will be seen by people that you have very different relationships with, whether they're professional, the public, family, And that's kind of where it's become much more complicated than it would have been, certainly in the era that I was growing up. So I think, you know, whilst, like I said, that I have a personal account on Facebook that my family and friends engage with, I'm still a professional even on Facebook. You know, I would still think, I still think carefully about kind of what I would post on there and what opinions I would share even. Um, It's just that it's more secure and it is focused on family. But I think that, you know, your point, Emma, about anyone can kind of screenshot anything um, and it can get out there no matter how secure your settings are is really important. So, yeah. 
So I suppose we're imagining also there's this invisible line between patient and professional where the reality mm -hmm. is so many of us will have a lived experience of one oh. or another across the lifespan. Yeah. And so the reality is, you know, that your school mums, your, your running club, whatever, there'll be a number of people that might have accessed services at some point, either through you or directly. Um, and likewise, we're hearing much more people being open around their mental health struggles and, and care and treatment that they're seeking. We know there's lots of examples where people um, seek care in the services in which they also work. So it's quite a, it's such a tricky area, isn't it? Because people, um, you may have had a relationship of, you know, perfectly reasonable as friends and suddenly they become your patient or a patient in an area you're working. So there's such a level of fluidity, isn't there? Mm. Definitely. So shall I move on to another one? Yeah. Um, so we've got, when we see prisoners' patients as different to us, so this is at the other um, end of the spectrum, when we see patients as different to us, when they're dehumanised, we forget they have feelings. Mm -hmm. It's also important to acknowledge the need to balance risk with the therapeutic relationship. It can be a very tricky balance as it depends on the individual needs. Um, it continues just a bit more to say, we also need to think that staff working on particularly emotionally draining and chaotic environments often feel burnout. And that can lead to the, which I think is a really important point, that can lead to the development of emotional vulnerabilities that can be met when a patient or prisoner shows appreciation, praising, and often emotional containment. So, yeah, so there's a lot there, really. But I think important points, really, about um, the kind of balance within therapeutic relationships that we talked about earlier. And, um, yeah, and about the vulnerability of clinicians. Mm. Dave's joined in as well. Hello, Dave. I know you're quiet tonight. Um, is this all made more complicated because nurses are and have been sexualized in society? Mm. Oh. I mean, if anyone who's Googled nurse uniform on a works computer soon quickly found out never to do that again. So, <laughs> but yeah, the way that people see nurses is very different from the lived experience of being a nurse that I've ever had. Mm. <laughs> Not many of us wear the nurse's kit anymore, do we? Anyway, but um, no. Mm. It's far from glamorous, isn't it? <laughs> mm. But again, it's, it's really an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because I suppose in mental health, historically, we haven't worn uniforms, which mm. is one. And we've gone back into them during COVID. So actually far more nurses, even myself, although there are scrubs, which doesn't really elicit the same attention, I'm sure, as it might have done if, um, in a different sort of outfit. So it's a, an interesting issue. But I guess there's more something about perhaps about gender rather than the sexualisation. Um, and how that can be misconstrued. And I guess that's something you were talking about earlier, Teresa, I think, when you, particularly around prisons, and might have been in our little pre-chat about how mm. it can be seen as different within different environments, how you show that human side, but also that, that gender difference rather than necessarily sexualization per se. That's just my experience. Mm. Yeah. We do, give, we do give a lot of ourselves away in what we wear, of course. I, I, I think there's there's pros and cons for wearing uniform, but uniform is a great leveller. Hmm. An interesting thing is because I think the reason people get let's call it funny about nurses <laughs> um, is because exactly of that intimacy and that closeness, and that's always a, a space between human beings which causes anxiety. 
doesn't mm-hmm. it? And, and I think, you know, you've got touch, you've got closeness, you've got um, empathy and sympathy, and those are the keystones of relationships, good and bad, mm-hmm. depending on how they're, how they're managed, don't they? So it's almost like Lego pieces, and whether you build that into something which is healing and hopeful, or whether you build mm-hmm. something that's destructive, ultimately, is up to you and your skill, really, because the building blocks between supporting recovery and manipulating and damaging they're the same sorts of skills just used with very different intent Mm. and I think that's why it's so important that we're really thoughtful about how we impact on other people and we all make mistakes I know I do it all the time you know I think I'm being funny and I'm not (laughs) that kind of stuff and and it's really important I think how we how we use that because it's like a it's like a knife isn't it? a knife can be a tool or it can be a weapon and it really depends on how you manage those skills and the more skilled you get and the more power you accrue the more responsibility you have to to delegate it safely and to manage it safely but if you aren't in a position where you can talk to colleagues where you can get honest feedback on how you're doing that how are you supposed to learn you know it feels like it's a it's some it's a skill that we expect people to have without necessarily giving them space to try to manage, to self-correct, to learn. Because, I mean, I don't think, the conversation we're having now, I don't think I ever had that when I was training to be a nurse. I had mm-hmm. snippets from colleagues talking about splitting or boundaries or, you know, taps on the shoulder about going, no, no, not that direction this way. But I I was guided very much rather than had an open conversation about it. So I think mm-hmm. this is really useful. Although I do see that we're, we're really cracking on in terms of time so I guess we're going to have to start thinking about if there's anything that people people want to talk about that we haven't had a chance to yet I just wanted to add something that when you're working in secure settings it's very different Mm. to in an acute setting or place or where people have short stays because for many people this is their home for years Mm. you know so they have long-term relationships with other patients and with members of staff long-term professional Mm. relationships that has the capacity to change a dynamic and certainly it's not unusual in such wards for for the ward to provide a birthday present for example for somebody when it's their birthday because that is the environment not just in which they're treated but in which they reside and some people get hardly any visitors or hardly any communication from other people apart from the people on the ward which is which is you know, a, a, an especially sound reason for why consistency every single day mm. and that team approach to maintaining the professionalism is incredibly important because it isn't a family, but it has lots and lots of characteristics that are similar to a family. Mm. Mm. I remember seeing one of my senior colleagues handle a situation absolutely brilliantly. And, um, he became the subject of, of, a, of quite a young girl who just just adored him because he was such a cool guy. And like everybody loved him, he was great. But she obviously was quite confused about how to express that. And he just said, you deserve to have somebody who thinks that you're special, who's not being paid to do that. Oh, and I just thought, you know, yeah, she does. And she was like, oh, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. And he's going, you know, I can, I can care about you. I can want you to do well. But at the end of the day, this is my job. And you deserve better than that. You deserve somebody to like you for who you are, because that's what everybody deserves. And he really helped her to understand that this was, this was a start to something real and better. And, that, and it good. was really well handled, I thought. Yeah. That's good for Alfonso to take back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, 
a good comment about humour, actually, which I think is good. Um, and it's about how humour can be used both ways. It can be used as a way of kind of um, levelling the kind of power imbalance. But again, it can also be used inappropriately, depending on the humour. So I think that's quite a nice comment. One of the yeah. big red flags, isn't it? When you see humour that's punching down in a team, and it's a team that's cutting instead of building. It's a real problem. Mm. So the canary in the coal mine, like kind of like dark humour sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Any more sort of thoughts on? I appreciate we've got a massive topic. What we were talking about was relationships and managing professional boundaries in secure settings, which is very different to working in older adults or working mm-hmm. with young children or people with learning disabilities. And those things all need different types of thought and negotiation. But that's what we mm-hmm. were talking about today. So, is there anything either about danger signs or ways of working safely, or anything that anyone wanted to just to to bring out before we? start to think about how we can finish. Sorry, I was just going to say, can I just very quickly say, because I was given a piece of advice when I first started in, in secure settings, um, which I thought was the worst advice ever. I was told that to, you know, to not, um, you know, give away who I was as a person, to create an identity of who I was and where I lived and what my relationships were, which I, I, I to this day I think it was the worst information or worst piece of advice anybody could give me, and I, I would really strongly advise against that because one, you know, how do you live a lie without becoming yeah. a, a bigger and a bigger liar? So just in case anybody's been given that advice, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's yeah. really not great, is it? Yeah. The NHS, mm-hmm. it's not the CIA. We can calm yeah. down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, The other thing I would say is it it comes back to this, it is an imaginary line between who are the staff and who are the patients. So even within high secure settings, people do recover, people do get out. The average day, even in high secure is seven years, people do um, come out of prison, they do lead a life again. Some people in prison are only there short spaces of time and they often will, you may come across them in either your professional life, as I have done, or in your personal life, just walking down the street or... Um, if you live near an open prison at the hotel you're staying at, so you just never know when you're going to catch people. Mm-hmm. And I suppose for me, the, the key message is this should be an open conversation dialogue all of the time because it does change and it does pose problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in quite a, a national meeting um, where someone that I had nursed in secure setting was there. And I felt challenged. Mm. Um, you know, it felt quite tricky. I have to be honest, it felt very tricky. And I imagine it felt tricky for them because I knew things that they probably hadn't shared. And I think it's something that should be an ongoing discussion, ongoing dialogue. And as that fluid line becomes more and more fluid, as we start to actively encourage people's lived experience to, to be working as professionals, to disclose, it's going to become even more tricky sometimes to know where that line is and why. So um, mm. I suppose that's the thing that I think has really shifted and changed from when I first started. And yeah, like as everybody said, I've made loads of mistakes along the way. And luckily I've had people to reach out and catch me before I did anything too catastrophic. And it was always, I thought I was working with good intent and then you realise that actually, yeah, it's it's not great. But um, so the, the importance of team and looking out for each other is also something that's really, really key that I know has been mentioned in clinical supervision. Can never underestimate the importance of clinical supervision within these settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or good handovers, because lots of people don't manage to get clinical supervision, much as they may like to. And handover time when everybody's together is often the time when you can sort of say, can I just check before we all leave this office and we go out into 
into our work day today. Is everybody all right? Mm-hmm. And the same on the way out as well. You know, okay, the day's over. We've handed over. Is everybody all right? Um, and just to listen out for anybody that is given a handover or information about a patient, which is always predominantly good or always predominantly bad. Or if you hear a whole team functioning in that way, because sometimes we can sort of be seduced into a frame of mind that mm. isn't fair and doesn't really um, give an individual a chance to be the person they want to be because they they become constructed as a person by the handover and the accounts of them rather than themselves. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking my comment really was um, that in prison settings, it's not all mental health nurses and not all prisoners that you come across will be accessing mental health. I mean, take mm. the view that you should take a whole prison approach to mental health that, you know, given the kind of stress of being in prison, etc., that anytime you could access mental health, but you'll also come across people that won't um, access mental health care. And equally, this relationship needs to extend to, you know, general nurses, GPs, um, you know, midwives in prisons, etc. Because the sort of boundary issues are the same. It isn't just about working with people who are accessing mental health support in prison. So I think there is kind of a wider conversation as well about boundaries that is kind of beyond um, mental health um, professionals and mental Dave's, health patients. Yeah, definitely. Dave's just shared. Um, uh, if you are concerned about a breach, please speak to somebody. Absolutely yeah. right. So a colleague, nurse, lifeline, trade union rep, manager, HR, occupational health, anybody. Don't yeah. don't sit in silence with it. Um, yeah. So please do reach out. But this has been a really interesting conversation. So thank mm-hmm. you very much for that. I was quite unsure where we we're going to go with it, but I think we went to lots of places that are actually going to be quite helpful for people. So yeah. thank you all very, very much for that. I appreciate that. Next week, we're talking with researchers, lecturers, practitioners, um, and artists about graphic medicine. So do join us for that one as well. Wow. And thank you very much for your time tonight, everybody. Really appreciate yeah, thank that. Thank you. Really good. Yeah. Night, night all. Night. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.